Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast. This is episode 129, and we are doing some news and notes today. We're talking about Elon Musk starting to take over Twitter, uh, the Grammys, Kanye, always Kanye, Kansas <laughs> in their game last night, and uh, Tiger, and then a little bit of NBA news. So we got a busy agenda today. Stay tuned, buckle up your seatbelts, put your trade tables up. We're in for a great ride. Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. The man, this first headline's my favorite. Elon finally starting to make some moves over, uh, you know, over Twitter, it turned out uh, it was revealed just like uh, 24 hours ago that he owns about four times or three or four times what Jack Dorsey has in Twitter and has just become its largest shareholder. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of us talk about uh, why does this guy tweet so much? <laughs> Clearly, there was a plan in place here uh, over time. Um, it makes complete sense for his brand and who he is for how much he does. He is involved in Twitter, how much he um how much he communicates also his his opinions on digital media and digital opinions um and censorship of those for him to take a position here at twitter um it will be interesting considering jack dorsey kind of taking more of a back seat and focusing on square um it allows elon to maybe uh create an impact here it'll be an interesting dynamic because it seems like um, the ethos of Jack Dorsey versus the ethos of uh, Elon Musk are in direct competition with each other. Um, but it was nice to see that um, the company was not fearful of Elon taking such a large stake with their immediate addition to him to the board. Um, clearly, the company is a shareholder of the company. It's exciting to me because it's been a stagnant company for quite a while. Um, it seems to be in, in transition, um, not knowing what to do with what's happened with COVID and political landscape, with the censoring of opinions and thoughts. And then the other side of this, obviously, being Twitter being kind of a haven also. For me, why I avoid it a lot is that it's a haven. You aren't even on it is because it's a haven for a lot of negative energy, bad vibes, arguments, fights. Uh, a lot of negativity and very little positivity. Yeah. I felt like what Elon said uh, about it being a public forum or really functioning as society's public forum is, you know, really true. And I think that when you approach it with the lens that a lot of Twitter's group has approached it, they tend to, you know, they tend to really want to preserve a sense of, um, I guess, control over the platform in terms of what's being posted, what's being shared. And I think this is going to be a good step in a direction of reducing the role of Twitter admins over what's actually being posted. And, you know, I think when you get upset at a platform like Twitter for seeing things you don't like on there, it's like this thing is such a mirror, like everything in society is a mirror. And we shouldn't expect somebody else to be going in the mirror and polishing it for us. We got to clean ourselves up. And so I do think like it's valuable for society to be able to see, you know, what what is wrong with society? You know, why, like, to be able to see how people get emotional and how angry people are and how negative they want to be, 
you know, that's an important thing for us to see as well, uh, just as a reality check for us to, you know, grow ourselves and make the decisions that we need to make to uh, get to a more positive place. So, you know, I think this is in in general, like a really good thing. I think Elon in general is, um, you know, pretty balanced in his views on free speech. He's he's not a free speech absolutist to a crazy extent, but he's a free speech um, advocate to a meaningful extent that I think, you know, will progress society forward. And I think out of all the people who could do this, you know, who could just buy a company that they don't feel is operating well and change the rules, like he's probably more, I'm not going to say the most, I'm not going to say like he's, you know, he's crushing it ethically, but he's probably a little more balanced than, you know, maybe a Bezos who, who could do the same thing. Yeah, and just to remember, you know, he's taken a seat at the table. He's put his money where his mouth is. So now his opinions do matter and his thoughts on the company do matter. And if he didn't feel like he could make an impact, one thing you can say about Elon Musk is that um, he invests in things that he wants to be active in, that he wants to play a role in um, and help um, whether or not you agree with the way that he does things all the time, uh, you can respect the fact that he does care about his investments and he does care about the businesses that he attaches his name to in a very serious way. And 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 I think that's only a good thing for a company like Twitter. You know, hopefully, the the number one thing that I think could help Twitter is to eliminate some of these to figure out a way to eliminate the Twitter bots. Right. The Twitter bots seem to also drive a lot of this negative energy. Um, If if they can figure out a way to control that and really make it a a forum that's authentic um, and the opinions to be authentic and not oftentimes AI generated, um, we would we can all stand to benefit from Twitter as a platform. It is a great platform if used properly. hundred percent. You know, the thing I'm most excited about is the day that Trump goes back on Twitter because this is, you know, one step in that direction. I think it's going to be a funny one uh, to see where media goes with that. Yeah, I personally don't think he will be back on on, on uh, Twitter anytime soon, but uh, it seems like he's doing pretty well um, with his with his little sideshow uh, Trump media platform. I, I like that all his people are on there talking to each other versus talking to me. <laughs> 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 I love that. I love that perspective. <laughs> um, moving forward, uh, the Grammys, um, you know, had a nice little snub at Virgil, which was unintentional, but just showcases the way of thinking of essentially white media in calling Virgil Abloh a hip hop fashion designer during his in memoriam uh, segment during the Grammys. Um, very similar to how any black artist has always been considered urban, regardless of the type of music they make. I think this, you know, one of the recent examples is Lil Nas X and uh, Old Town Road. And whether that was a country track or not, that was a yeah. huge debate. And this is just, you know, another example of like the implicit way in which people put people in boxes just because of their skin color. And if you, if you study any of Virgil's work, he was not a hip hop fashion designer. He was a pure your high fashion designer that hip hop artists loved because they could relate to him. Yeah. And the Grammys obviously had issues coming into this. Um, Just a reminder again that, you know, media platforms are not always for minorities because they've been directed, created and driven um, by perspectives. Um, They don't always understand cultures outside of their own. Um, And, you know, 
Jay Prince a couple of weeks ago had called for many artists uh, to ban the Grammys. Drake doesn't attend the Grammys anymore. Jay-Z historically uh, has taken stances against the Grammys. But to, to have that controversy and saying, hey, this isn't an award show that respects us, respects our culture, it just exploits us. Um, when you see things like this done, you realize that sometimes the mindset and mentality um, can't change because it's so, so deeply rooted, right? And it's sad to it's sad to recognize that truth, but I do think it's a, it's an important truth for us all to recognize and just adjust to uh, versus just be angry at. Create your value, create your lane. Don't worry about how media views you, how media decides to control your narrative. Just focus on, on on creating value in the world and you can't always control how how institutions receive that that value. Hundred percent. So yeah, after winning a Grammy uh, with Jay Z for the track Jail, uh, then pulled out of Coachella. Um, that was uh, a very, very random thing, but I'm sure, you know, hopefully he's he's healing from all the stuff he's going through. Um, definitely I'm not somebody who really cares who plays at Coachella, but this is something people are talking about. Well, look, all those people who uh, have nothing better to do with their lives than create a petition asking for Coachella to pull Kanye as the headliner got their ultimate wish, right? So you guys should be happy. You did something meaningful with your lives. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, I do think this is interesting. Um, it is very interesting because I don't think a headline this close to the show pulling out. I wonder what his motivations are. Maybe it was um, a triggered response to how he feels uh, he's been treated and how he's being treated in media. But as all things Kanye, uh, it definitely does what Kanye does best, which is keep him at the top of headlines always and forever. Yeah. <laughs> now, diving into what was an amazing college basketball national championship game, Kansas-UNC. Uh, it was last night, if you're listening to this, it was a few nights ago. That was just mind-blowing, V. I mean, first half, I thought UNC had it. I even texted one of our mutual friends who's a huge UNC fan that we met over the weekend, uh, Torre, and uh, I let him know at halftime. I was like, yo, you got this. And then at the end of the game, you know, UNC did not got this. Uh, they choked away a huge lead. You could see the wear of the tournament affecting the players. You could see three of them had ankle injuries and you know probably could have done done with some lasso socks. Just going to put that out there. Uh, <laughs> but it was definitely a master class in mental toughness from Kansas. And uh, watching UNC, um, they had one player, Caleb Love, who really carried them through their last couple games with some really great hero ball. He went 5-for-24 in the game, missed about every single shot he took in the second half, and there was a point where, you know, even I was saying, all right, man, like, you missed, like, seven straight possessions. Like, maybe it's time to actually run an offense and, you know, not do it. So it's, you know, it brings an interesting question forward, which always comes up in sports is, is hero ball the way to move forward? If you do have a player that can get hot and can win you games like that, or, you know, especially after he had an injury and, and wasn't hitting, is it time to recenter and uh, go back to playmaking? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, North Carolina, I think their season in itself um, was an interesting one. They started out really, really poorly this season. Um, but this kid has 
kind of stepped up and took a leadership role uh, on a team that needed some leadership, needed some heart, needed somebody who wasn't scared um, to take big shots. And like you said, the other side of this is that what happens when that kid isn't hot? You live by the gun, you die by the gun, right? And that is an example here. Um, regardless, right, UNC um, showed a, a tremendous amount of courage and heart this season. Um, and the final four overall showed us what college basketball can be at its best. Um, we had two great games, um, both the both the UNC Duke game and now this Kansas uh, UNC game. This is what we want. We want a reason to tune into games. And like you said, the dynamic of of how both teams played and how the team that won ended up winning um, was definitely an interesting one, and, and it showcased. Uh, quite a bit. The game, the Kansas all season. Why I even when we were leaving on Saturday, I said Kansas is going to win, is because I saw a team that played the best team basketball um, of all the teams in the tournament. Um, and in the end, when you get down, that's when you showcase your strength as a team. When you're up, it's easy. It's easy to play great, right? But they were down big. They came together as a team and one is a team, um, and North Carolina, though, should have nothing to be ashamed of. They were an eight seed, and they made it all the way to the final, took out Coach K. Um, this is a legendary season um, for UNC, regardless of the outcome. Yeah, I think so. I think that what they're going to remember the most is the semifinal, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they buried Coach K, you know, and that's – Exactly. That's, that's a memory that will live forever. Exactly. One more, you know, amazing sports thing that's happening is uh, seeing Tiger Woods back in the Masters after his car accident. Many were doubting whether we would even see him playing again. Um, this is awesome, man. I'm a big Tiger fan. It's just good to see him out there. Yeah, I mean, when if you've grown up with Tiger Woods, uh, you've kind of seen multiple phases of his life, right? Like you saw basically the guy that was like God, the God of golf who could never lose um, was pretty much seemed like the perfect person. Um, then you saw the collapse obviously with his personal, personal struggles. And also you saw the results of that, right. And how the world responded to the early phase, the second phase where his personal life fell apart um, to his recovery and comeback from multiple injuries um, to now you know, basically having a tragic accident and coming back from that. And I think there's a lot more that I've appreciated about Tiger Woods and who he is uh, since he's been as far removed from that basically impeccable, un unbeatable force. I respect and appreciate the fact that he did come back from the personal issues. He did come back from this accident um, and continues to show perseverance. I think that's more admirable than anything. He may or may not ever break Jack Nicholas's records, but I think this is a very powerful story of, of a human being living, in, living out in real life um, that I think there are a lot of takeaways for all of us um, who are trying to, trying to make it in anything or, or, or in love or passionate about anything in life, um, testing and seeing how much you love it. And it seems like everyone who's seen him play thinks he has a good shot of winning this thing. And what an unbelievable story that would be. That would be nuts. And I mean, I think that's, that's the root of it. 
do what you love. Don't worry about the setbacks. They're going to come. Just do what you love every day, and you're going to have a great life. Yes. So speaking of one of the biggest surprises um, in sports this year, I think bigger than Tiger playing the Masters, is the Lakers and Nets both in the bubble. Both were, at the beginning of the season, being picked to win the entire championship in the NBA. Man, V, what what is happening? Well, with Brooklyn, I think the uncertainty of the season, Kyrie Irving not playing, James Harden kind of being James Harden, and Kevin Durant obviously being hurt. It just seems like last year and this year, this team can't catch a break and can never really, we can never really see the version of the Nets that we hope we want to see, right? For whatever reason, it's a calamity of, calamity of errors, calamity of issues. You know, everyone wants the convenient person to blame here is Kyrie Irving and his, his COVID stance, but there's just been a series of issues with Brooklyn. But I do think that um, they've been a little bit more, um, you can excuse kind of their scenario and situation a little bit more. You cannot knock what Kevin Durant is trying to do. The man is literally playing like Superman, but he's not getting the help that he needs. Um, it doesn't seem like they have the chemistry that they need. Ben Simmons is still hurt. Um, but at this, at this, in the same sentence, nobody wants to see no number one seed in the East or number two seed wants to see Brooklyn at the number eight or number seven seed. Right. But um, Lakers, similar issues. Obviously we've talked about the, the Lakers issues ad nauseum, but it just goes to show you that what's good on paper or what's great on paper and what you expect on paper doesn't always lead to the results that you hope because there are so many other things that come to being great. Interpersonal chemistry, teamwork, coaching, general management, all of these things kind of play a role. It doesn't matter how much talent you have. All of those things factor in to your ultimate result as a team. And I think both of these teams can look at those variables and say that we have some significant issues that we need to work out. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think, you know, it's the same it's the same narrative on the Lakers for me is you see LeBron playing out of his mind again. And uh, for various reasons, 80s injury, Russ kind of getting it together recently, but the, the fan base and media really not helping at all in his kind of mental journey and uh, some terrible front office work. Um, you see a team that, you know, probably would have had a better shot if they kept their roster from last year. Yeah, they definitely would have. Um, and I think also this this is a... Um, and it says something about AD. I think Russ has been getting a lot of the blame, but the issue really here is AD. The Lakers gave up, you know, the proverbial kitchen sink to get this guy to be, to lead them to the promised land. And, you know, this Mr. Glass reputation continues to follow him fairly, right? Um, it sucks to be be predisposed to injuries, but it also doesn't seem to me as an outsider that it's a, you know and same thing with another player Zion Williamson that these guys are necessarily making all of the changes that they need to make off the court to kind of fix some of these issues on the court I obviously am not with them every day it might be an unfair statement it just seems that way from the outside looking in that 
hey, you know, you have a tremendous amount of accountability when you're being paid 30, 40 million dollars a year to play a game. Are you fully living up to that accountability? Are the people that you are paying, are they doing their job well, right? This might not be an AD issue. It might not be a Zion issue, but are the people that are tasked to get these guys in elite physical shape, to keep them healthy, keep them on the court, are they doing their job well? And if they aren't doing their job well, are, is the player in a position to evaluate that properly? Because it is very frustrating when you see AD come in and play how good he possibly can be. But then even in the second game he's back, he's limping already at halftime. It's just scary. It's scary. Yeah. to. That's a great point. I think it's an interesting case with AD. I think it's a case of you start, you get that first injury. It's really hard to get yourself back to 100. In yeah. pro sports, that's never really the case. You're clear to 85 and you're back to playing. And it's like, okay, you can you know, you can do a good job, but it's not going to last forever. And if you re-aggravate that body part, it's it's going to get even worse. And I think that, you know, especially in New Orleans, I think we're seeing how terrible their medical staff is, not only with AD's whole career there, but seeing what's happening with Zion right now. This is clearly a, you know, a team issue down there since it's, you know, it's, it's been pretty long standing. Um, but just looking at the bigger picture, I think when – there's other players who have been kind of shut down in the same way. Um, teams these days are starting to shut them down for the whole season, which I find really interesting. Like uh, Jamal Murray, for example, who has been out for probably like a year, honestly. Like I can't remember the last time I saw him play. Maybe it was last year's playoffs or Clay Thompson, who they shut down for almost two years um, after his most recent injury. But when they do it the right way and they ramp them up the right way and they stay patient, you get now Clay Thompson at full strength and a real, you know, meaningful game-changing player that is, you know, built back up properly. And I think the thing that a lot of people take for granted is that there's, you know, obviously great genetic talent, but it's hard to get your body injury proof. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time and the things that you're you're working are really minor muscles, ligaments and tendons and that's what that's what these guys aren't able to work if they're just hitting their squats, hitting their bench, and then hopping back into the game or doing their core work or whatever they, they're doing. It takes a much more nuanced approach. It takes a lot more time. And I just, especially with the travel schedule, with the amount of rest required to recover yep. from injury, I just don't see that being a reality, especially in season for any player that's attempting to make a comeback during the season. Yeah, 100%. And obviously, you know, with all things uh, related to the Lakers, we can't go without talking about LeBron James's uh, influence over all of this. And um, he played, um, he played against the Pelicans, did not play in the Sunday showcase against the Nuggets. Some, you know, with all the rumor mills, people are always wondering what the trigger for LeBron's behavior is. The truth is, this is a 37 year old man who is been asked to do a lot at 37 years old. His body is not the same as it used to be. My belief is that if LeBron James could have played on Sunday, he would have played. Um, so those people who are thinking that he's trying to sabotage the Lakers season so that they get out, he gets a longer period of rest and they fire Frank Vogel. I think that that's just a bunch of noise and people just talk too much. I didn't see that. I mean, I think that it's whether they make the playoffs play in or not, Frank Vogel is going to be gone. I think, 
you know what's interesting to me is that when you see a coach break down and start throwing players under the bus part way through the season, that's a recipe for disaster. And you saw it with uh, Frank Fogel with Westbrook. You just saw it with Doc Rivers with James Harden last week. And interestingly enough, one of the candidates for Frank Vogel's, you know, soon to be former job is Doc Rivers. And it just goes to show, like, what are you doing when you're just cycling the same coaches amongst all the teams in the league? Like, you're not getting any better. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny to see this because the Lakers had the opportunity to hire Teron Liu. Um, and the reason that he did not get hired and the reason that he did not take the job is that the Lakers would not give him a contract that extended past the end of LeBron's career. And that was just such a weird thing to do to say, hey, we only want you to be the coach while LeBron is here is basically what they were saying to him. He said, okay, that's the way you want to do it. I'm going to go take the Clippers job and look at what the Clippers are doing they have all the same baked-in excuses. They've played the season without Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, and yet they're in a solid position to make the playoffs, and Paul George is back. There's a chance Kawhi Leonard will be back. So the, the whole Lakers organization and the psychology of that team and the front office just seems to make decisions um, based on the wrong reasons over and over again. Yeah. I agree completely. And I think just in general, we see this in pro sports a lot. There's obviously, there's obviously, you know, a lot of talent and experience required to be a coach at that level. But when you see consistently the same coaches who do not succeed at that level, getting job after job, while there's plenty of other candidates you could be looking at or pulling into the mix, plenty of other names you could try out and much more creative ways to approach how your team is constructed it just speaks to me of laziness in a lot of these front offices. Yeah, it is. And, you know, Doc, Rover, Doc Rivers is one of the entries. You see coaches like this all the time, right? And the best example of this in football is this guy named Marty Schottenheimer. They're always good enough to get your team pretty far, right? But they could never get your team over the mountaintop. Obviously, Doc did it one year with the Celtics. But if you look at even those Celtics teams, they suffered from underachieving most of Doc's tenure. This is a team that had <laughs> Rajon Rondo at his prime, uh, Ray Allen in his prime, Kevin Garnett in his prime, and Paul Pierce in his prime, plus a collection of great role players, and they could not get it done for more than one championship. That, to me, is underachieving. And then, but it's, there's either the, but he continues to get jobs because it's like he's on that borderline where he's always going to get you in the playoffs. He's always going to get you, but is that what you want, right? He's not doing well with the Sixers. Why would the Lakers want him? It just It's just weird, but I do think he has a reputation of being a player's coach, right? And it seems like that's one of the Lakers' priorities more than anything is they're thinking about, they're playing these mind games where they they think that that would appease LeBron James. And the truth is the coach, the coaches that have gotten the most out of LeBron James are the coaches who weren't scared to challenge him, Teron Liu and Eric Spolstra. So it's just, again, it just shows that they just don't get it. Yeah. We saw this last week. We saw the shouting match between Eric Spolstra and Jimmy Butler on the sideline during a game. Spolstra 
has always had my respect as a coach because he he just gets the job done. He keeps his guys in the right mental state, he keeps them focused, and there's a lot of narrative building about you know. I guess media doesn't want Jimmy in in Miami anymore, but I think that when you see a culture like that, it's amazing to see what they're able to achieve every year. And I think for me, Miami's one of the sleeper teams in the playoffs. They're they're one of the ones that can make a run here that we're not expecting. Yeah, they could. They could. I mean, Miami's always going to be good. That's what happens when you have a good front office. And what could have been, right? <laughs> the Lakers easily could have been uh, had a happy marriage with Pat Riley for life like they did with Jerry West. Um, speaking of Jerry West, they no longer have a solid relationship with him anymore either. Um, instead, they hire Rob Palinka, Michigan grad, scrub, GM to do the job. Just to talk about the uh, the misses, um, we the Lakers were offered Kyle Lowry for Taylor Horton Tucker, and they passed on that. They were offered; um, they had an opportunity to get Caruso, and they chose not to extend him. And now he's balling out at the Bulls. I mean, the list of misses just keeps. And DeRozan over. They had a chance to sign DeRozan over Westbrook. Over Westbrook, and they didn't do it. So it's like. Fine, Frank Vogel won't be back as the as the coach, but he won a championship, right? The it's just so odd to me that the the narrative isn't around Rob Palenka and the job that he's done. It's always about the coach, Westbrook or LeBron. But the core of the issues with the Lakers fall on AD's inability to be healthy and Rob Palenka's inability to do his job as a GM, and that's just the truth. And in, in a business like this, you have to be honest, not saying that, you know, Rob Polinka has no hope as a GM, but he's done an atrocious job with the Lakers. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Yeah. If you look at the, the history of the last several years, you know, it's it's been essentially just destroying all of the assets the Lakers had built up over the previous, you know, five, six years and bringing in players who are lower than the value of what they're trading away, you know? Yeah. You see it as they get beat by all these young teams full of players that they've traded away. Yep, yep. We'll see what happens. You know, it seems like um, the Lakers will definitely need to re rebuild, um, and that rebuilding process may take time. For us Cavaliers and Ohio fans, maybe maybe LeBron comes back to Cleveland for the end of his career. That would make us all happy. Yeah, we'll see. I think he's a little comfy. And Brentwood in one of his seven houses. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has a pretty nice estate over in Ohio too. Yeah. All I gotta say is, man, like, think about a Lakers roster today of Zoe, Caruso, Brandon Ingram, Josh Hart, LeBron. I mean, that's a good well, team. That's the challenge of right of culture building when and the pressure that LeBron James puts on a franchise, for better or for worse, the fact that he's in his 30s and he, he doesn't have time to sit there and build with guys. So he did it in Cleveland. It's like, okay, you got to make the moves. And AD, if AD could have stayed healthy, that was the move, right? Like when him and LeBron are on the court together, it's an unstoppable inside-outside force, right? But, you know, health yeah. is wealth. Health is wealth. No, on that note, it's been an awesome episode. We have an interview with uh, Bone Collector, the streetball legend, uh, coming out uh, this week as well. So stay tuned for that. Um, Man V, this has been an amazing episode. 
Yes, it has. It has. Um, we will be back next week. Always remember to stay moving. Be you. You is fly. Holla, boys out.